Welcome, welcome everybody to the McClaycast, where we in the McClay family explore various aspects of our lives. My name is Sam McClay, and with me is my older brother, Renee McClay Santiago, and our dad, Donald McClay III. So, go ahead and introduce yourselves for me, guys. I'm Renee McClay Santiago, Sam's older brother. Um, I am Don's uh, first son. I am 31 years old, and I'm very happy to be with you guys today. Hi, I'm Don, and I'm uh, 63 years old. Been living in Oakland some 30-odd years, where uh, these two gentlemen were born and raised. Thank you for joining me. I forgot to mention that I am 18 years old, just turned 18. But this show is focused around our family's thoughts, feelings, and experiences, which have shaped who we are. We will be exploring topics such as parts of our history, the state of the city and the country, education, and more by taking a peek into our family history and drama. Also expect a fair amount of media talk and analysis and excellent puns accompanying the discussion, particularly between me and Renee. In today's episode, we will be discussing themes of heritage, family, militarism, and race exemplified through stories of our family's history. Later, we will explore how it feels to sit with our family members' roles in these problematic histories as white Americans in the present who reject many of their actions while still recognizing that they are family and they are our legacy. So dad, take it away. Okay, about four years ago, um, we got a box in the mail. And the box was a, uh, a Marine Corps officer's sword. It was my father's sword. It was, at least it was grandfather's sword. And for those that don't know what one of these things looks like, it's a very lightweight sword. It's ornamental, it's not sharpened. And when you take the blade out of the scabbard, it has the name of the officer engraved into it. it has a little ivory handle, and they're used for uh, formal parades. An officer will carry a parade when they're marching along. Uh, the soldiers have to carry rifles. It, it is a ceremonial object. I knew it mostly for sitting on our bar, where uh, my dad had serious commitment to alcohol and uh, always had a bar with several bottles. He uh, would mix drinks and there was his sword and with the sword was a plaque uh, of the United States Marine Corps emblem which held the sword in place. I don't know what happened to the plaque. And I didn't know why we had the sword. Um, well, my brother had died. My younger brother had died a couple weeks earlier and it turns out that our stepmother, um, who had some problems, went through the house. This is after my brother just died. And she started claiming that this thing or that thing really belonged to her because it was my father's or I don't know what else. And my sister-in-law, who worked for the post office, and my sister decided that that sword should not leave the family. So they put it in a box and they sent it to us. And it sits on our wall today. Let's get into some discussion about it. So you mentioned that our family has always been in the Marine Corps, right? Not just the Marine the Corps, but the military, right? Surrounding the military and other parts of our family, what specific topics do you think are problematic that come up in our family background? Start with the wars. The wars were pretty controversial. When I was growing up, the war was Vietnam. A lot of us were against it. 
your grandfather had serious reservations about Vietnam. You know, he used to talk to me. He'd been in Korea, and he had a lot of things that happened to him in Korea made him kind of question the assumptions that he had growing up in Virginia. Like what? Well, like uh, around people of color. He had sergeants in his unit who were older than him, who had served in World War II. He referred to them as real soldiers. He had just, What relationship to a sergeant did he have? Oh, he was in charge of them. He was an officer. He'd just come out of officer training school. He went to the Virginia Military Institute. And at the age of 22 years, he uh, was given that sword and a lieutenant's bar to wear on his shoulder, and he was the boss. But he had people who uh, worked for him who were better soldiers than he was, more experienced and all. And also, he would ask me things like, you know, we would talk about these things. And he would ask me, he said, well, if you were a Vietnamese patriot, what would you do? And he was definitely willing to look at the war from the legitimate concerns of the people on the other side. Hmm. Okay. Renee, when, I, when you think of specific topics that are problematic in our family's background, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think there's, just truth be told, right, you can't really be a white American who's been in this country uh, as long as our family has um, and not have been part on some level as the broader structure of white supremacy. Um, and if you're particularly from the South, uh, <laughs> you know, there's the likelihood that um, your family was part of one of the cruelest systems of slavery in the world um, that went to the extent of fighting a war to protect and defend it, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, a defending state's rights, you know, that, that is ingrained in your culture. That is, that is a part of who you are, um, whether kind of consciously or unconsciously. And I think that um, on some level too, though, I think for, for me and our family, it's complicated because uh, my grandfather told me that there were parts of our family on both sides of the war, the Civil War, sorry. Um, and so, um, as actually I think a lot of families in Virginia, right, because I was kind of right at the dividing line between North and South. Quite literally. Quite literally. Um, and I think that, you know, our, our family, the McClay side of the family, were Unionists um, and stayed loyal to the Union cause. Um, but we had family members who were Confederates um, and that obviously that is something that is as part of the family and part, part of what is carried forward. Um, and kind of is a good example too, of how that legacy is mixed, right? Because push came to shove. Some of us were on the right side of that. Some of us were on the wrong side. It's almost unfair to even call it a legacy. It's more of a living legacy than it is a past one, especially considering the fact that it wasn't that long ago. It was like great-great-grandparents that were alive during the Civil War, man. My point is that the effects of the war and everything that happened afterwards are still in full effect today, and we have a responsibility to work towards bettering it. But I think also that the our relationship, too, in terms of our family's military service was that for, I think, older generations, um, it was that. It was service. Um, and I think that that's something that my grandfather, uh, maybe kind of an old fashioned, 
notion, but he felt a sense of duty. Um, he sense, felt a sense of um, that was that was what you did to be an honorable member of being an American, um, and that he I think before um, he served in Korea, he kind of had a very typical for a white guy of his age in Virginia view of the world that we were good and we were just, um, that what our military did overseas was in the defense of liberty uh, and our way of life. Um, and I think that, as, as my dad said, that that, that kind of comp got itself complicated as he started to really see what was going on overseas. Um, and as the United States involvement and what wars it was fighting became complicated by, you know, why are we actually in Vietnam, um, a country that posed no threat to the United States? Well, there was um, two things happening in that time. Well, there are many things happening at the time, but very especially, um, you know, my dad graduated college the same year of Brown versus Board of Education. So he was only 22 years old when he went to Korea. He was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps, but, you know, he was very young. And uh, he was learning things about our racial views. Now, our family wasn't, the McClays were not Southerners. They were actually from the West and, you know, his grandfather, my grandfather, your great-grandfather, was from uh, Colorado. But we had Southerners in the family. We had both people on both sides of World War II as well. My father married a German. Uh, I knew uh, my step-grandfather, Steve, had served in the German army. He was from the German part of Czechoslovakia. So there was like a certain like a division in their thinking. And I think I, I, I feel that division too. There was the sense of service to your country, sense of loyalty, and a certain military ethic that was independent of the actual war. The politics of a war and a conflict, that kind of belonged to somebody else. It did not belong to the soldier. And uh, when I started to become involved in uh, supporting the Nicaraguan government, which, you know, the United States was totally opposed to that government, mm -hmm. uh, militarily opposed to that government, and I was militarized while I was living in Nicaragua, my dad was reading about it later, years later, and he called me up one day and it says, this book says that you said to everybody that uh, it just wasn't acceptable for any of us to die up here. And I said, I didn't remember saying that, but it was the kind of thing I would say. And that came from the same ethic that he had. When you were a Marine Corps officer, you served your country, you were loyal, you did a lot of other things. You also took care of your Marines. You tried to bring them all back home alive. Okay, let's get more into that later. So let me get my opinion in. So for me, thinking about what topics are problematic, the struggle lies in the fact that I don't know our family outside of California, really. Most of our family lives on the East Coast, or lived, which is the real problem here. Renee, being 31, knew a lot of these people before they passed on, but me, being 18, pretty much the only time I ever saw these people was when we were visiting them in a cancer ward, so... I never got to know them. So you guys are hearing as much of the stories of our family as I am. 
so that's really all I can say about it. I know that I can recognize our history there, but to me, all it is is history. It's not something that I've ever lived or witnessed. But moving on, what cultural aspects of our family do you feel were more respectable and what made them respectable? Renee, how about you start us off? No, that's interesting to hear you say that, Sian. Um, and I did think of one more thing as we were talking. I mean, my going going to visit my grandpa, um, we would drive down Jefferson Davis Highway. Uh, and being a kid from the Bay Area, that blew my mind, right? Because my, I mean, I view Jefferson Davis as like, you might as well call it Adolf Hitler Highway. Um, but it was totally normal out there. Um, and you would see Confederate flags and you still, still see Confederate flags. I think they actually changed the name of the highway, but that was like in the last couple of years and thank God for it because I think people are starting to look around and go like, really, we're going to have the freeway named after the Confederate president, you know, for a grown man, um, who had served his country, um, in a deeply, I mean, even more patriarchal sexist and racist society than we are today to admit not in public because you know the times had changed but in front of his own children and his wife and and the household that he led up that he had been wrong um that he had listened to martin luther king's speeches and heard them in his heart um and changed his behavior because he realized that he was teaching the same racism and hate to his children that had been taught to him and that that was wrong and that he was, you know, he had served with African-Americans. He, you know, he had friends in the military who were African-American that the military actually being one of the first institutions in the United States to have desegregated um, and knew that, you know, they're all of the, 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 the understanding of white supremacy was total nonsense. Um, and yet that he was participating in kind of the cultural, quiet, private white supremacy by what he was doing and then changing those actions. Um, the older I've gotten, and I think about the context of what's happening now with Black Lives Matter and um, how do we make our society less racist? How do we make the institutions less racist? You know, in on some level, right, it, it starts with things like that. Um, and I'm very proud of my grandfather for having had the courage um, to admit he was wrong, which is something that, you know, not a lot of us do. Um, and is really what's going to have to happen for this place, to, this country to be a better place and a not racist place. You know, there's a story he told a lot of times. And, uh, you know, when I was young, I got tired of hearing the story over and over again. But uh, it is a story that I've taken to heart uh, because my dad was telling me that, you know, he was in Korea and he would actually listen to Martin Luther King speak on Armed Forces Radio. And he would tell us that one day he was listening to Armed Forces Radio, Martin Luther King was on there, and Martin Luther King said that segregation was immoral. And the word immoral stuck with my dad. You know, it's one thing to say it's wrong or it's illegal, but it's another thing to say that it is immoral. And my dad told me, he says that he agreed. He listened to Martin Luther King say that. And I guess he might have been like 23, 24 at this time. But he agreed. Martin Luther King was right. 
But he also had to accept the fact that what he had been taught, what he had been taught in school, what he had been taught in government, what he had been taught in church. And he said, this is something he heard from the pulpit, that somehow segregation was moral. And now here was this man saying that it wasn't moral, it was immoral. And uh, my dad had to say that, you know, something he had been taught to believe was wrong. And that makes me think of a couple things too. Of one, I remember my grandfather telling me the story about um, when Nixon was running for re-election in 72. And uh, my grandfather was a proud Republican in those days. Was he? Uh, mm-hmm. um, very much saw himself though in like the tradition of Republicans being, you know, the party of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Well, they were swapping roles right. on it race was, at that time. It was right because Nixon right, was the first president who really ran on a Southern right. strategy to kind of incorporate white racism uh, right. into the party. And the segregationists that my dad grew up with were all Democrats. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the shift had just kind of started in a big way. Um, and he had, he told me that, you know, he told everyone at work he was going to vote for Nixon. He had like a little Nixon button and um, they would talk about what a great job Nixon was doing. And that when he was in the privacy of the voting booth, he was looking at the ballot and he was thinking about the war in Vietnam. And he just said he could not actually bring himself to vote for Nixon. So he voted for McGovern. Uh, For those of you who don't know, McGovern was actually a pretty lefty candidate on the Democratic side and uh, had made the main issue for the campaign was he was going to end the war in Vietnam one way or another. No ifs, ands or buts even if we had to surrender Southern Vietnam. And I always thought about that. If here's a Marine who was walking around telling people he was toting the party line. Freedom. Freedom. And when it came to it, he went, you know what, I'm going to vote for the <laughs> liberal Dem uh, to end the war. Um, and McGovern, of course, was blown out by Richard Nixon, but there yeah, was one all... vote for him from the McClay family. Yeah, my dad came home that day. And I was like, did you do it? Did you do it? Right. Uh-huh. And he said to me, he said, you know, I got into the voting booth and he looked down. And in those days, they used a machine in Connecticut. There was a voting machine. Mm-hmm. And he said, he looked at the, the toggle he would have to throw to vote for Richard Nixon. And he thought of all the things that he'd known about Richard Nixon for all the years. Right. And he just he couldn't do it. He also had some other pressures. Uh, oh, the door of my room was a sign that I brought back from a protest. Mm-hmm. And it was an image of Richard Nixon as a rat with blood dripping from his fangs, standing on top of a uh, pile of skulls and bodies and bones. And in the background, you could see the high altitude bombers going off in the distance. And the sign said, why change Nixon in the middle of a screw? Vote for Nixon in 72. <laughs> so my dad, you know, my dad had a little bit of uh, things happening around him to uh, underline how unhappy so many Americans were with the way the country was going in 1972. I, I also, the other thing that it made me think of is, um, I touched on a little bit earlier, but the, the, the sense of duty and honor um, and the, growing up in the Bay Area, that was that was something that, to be frank, 
people kind of sneered at and turned their noses up at of just kind of, you know, that's jingoistic propaganda um, that people say um, in order to support all kinds of cruel and terrible policies. Um, which is sometimes true. Which is sometimes true. Um, but for my grandpa, that was real, right? The, the, the service was real. The sense of honor was real. I think kind of the proof of that for me was um, at one point Oliver North, when he ran for Senate in Virginia, um, Oliver North being one of the people involved in the Iran-Contra scandal, just to be brief, he basically violated the Constitution, maybe under the direction of the president, maybe not to support death squads in Latin America, um, and was convicted and went to jail. Um, he, um, he ran for Senate, and my grandfather was so offended that a Marine had betrayed their oath to defend the Constitution that he set up the uh, Veterans Against Oliver North campaign in Virginia. And so I think that, you know, that that was something he took seriously and committed to. So I think it's interesting to look at specifically with my grandfather, my dad's father, but I'm sure this is true for a lot of people of his, you know, race, social class. That they they weren't just all a uniform thought. People were changing and people were growing to be different people. They were listening to other sources that were quite different from them. And I think that there's something we can learn from that because like anyone who looks at the political culture in the United States right now knows that we are filled with echo chambers. So to learn methods of listening to people that exist very, very against your beliefs, you can learn a lot. And I think that it's interesting that people, they were able to change. So why can we not today when we have so many more privileges? Let's move on to one more question. Okay, well, I have a question for both of you, to my sons. Um, you know, I wonder how you guys feel about the military history of this family and about military service and those values all together. And I, you know, we, we've been talking about other times. We don't live in those times. We live in a times where there is no draft. Kind of. Kind of no draft. And there's been constant interventionist war. Sam, you you have always lived in a country in war. You're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And so how do you see it looking not so much back, but looking forward? How do you see it today? What is the family? What do you think of the family history? And what do you think of the values? And where do you think we're going with all this? Huh. So I, it's, it's hard for me to separate, right, one what the military is doing and the service element of it, I guess. I guess so, so if you're going to take a through line from my grandfather and his generational service to now, um, I, I mean, you know, my, my grandfather would have been the first person to say he would not want any of us to enlist right now. Um, he did say that to me when I was young. Um, and I think, I think that's because you know, the United States' wars um, have turned into a foreign policy based around how we're trying to shape the world. And, and I guess to me, that, that is part of what is important about it. I would say that the military is not getting better. I would say that our country is growing more and more nationalistic, and I think it's especially abundant in our media. I mean, as someone, I play video games, right? Me and Renee both. 
you literally cannot play video games without being targeted by the military. Especially as someone my age, practically every other YouTube video I watch has a Go Army ad on it, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? People in the 60s did not receive that amount of pressure to join the military. And then imagine if you lived, we are very lucky to live in a family where despite being a military family, no one in this room feels pressured to join the military. But if you did feel pressured to join the military from like your peers, people you loved, and then the only thing you got from your media was that the military was your only support system, your only career, your only option, it's impossible. So you create this culture of military dependence and it makes it impossible to depend on anything else. And also the draft. So I'm about to start college, right? And I'm sure a lot of you know, but if you're a male trying to get apply for your FAFSA, your financial aid document, you have to register for the draft. Even though we don't have a draft, quote unquote, you have to register for the draft. So I, if we do ever have a draft again, I could be drafted, which is ridiculous. So that's the price of education in our country, I suppose. How do you feel about the people involved? How do you feel about like your grandfather's service? So, so that actually kind of ties into the next thing I was going to say that I actually support bringing back the draft. I think that we have right now have a de facto economic draft, uh, which is to mean that now the people serving in the military is it's a lot of poor kids who don't really have other options who end up enlisting. Um, and then I think you have a smaller and smaller and smaller section of families who still continue to carry on the legacy of everybody serves. And what that does is I think it effectively hides from the broader population um, the reality of the cost of that war. I think it's not a coincidence that Vietnam had massive anti-war demonstrations. Well, when everybody's kid might go, you might get up off your butt if you oppose the war and do something about it. I think the wars right now have less support than Vietnam did. Um, but since your kid is not going to go, and chances are likely none of the kids of your friends are going to go, um, you don't really end up caring as much. Um, you don't have that skin in the game that motivates you to have it be one of the issues that you vote on or something that you care about. Um, in terms of what you're saying and asking dad about how do I feel about the people serving in the military, they're not making the decisions as to who to invade. No. Um, I don't think in any way, shape, or form, like I don't hold those people responsible for what is going on now. I think that by and large, like I said, it's either they don't have any other options or it is just so ingrained in their family's history that they go. I mean, you know, sometimes the, the, the social pressures of your family are even stronger than the economic ones. Um, and so to that effect, I, I feel like no hostility to anyone that served or serving. Um, and in fact, most of the people that I've met who are veterans um, are pretty critical of the wars that have been going on. And that I do think that something that at least for me, I think, in, in, in my understanding of it, that has changed, I think, in a positive way, is that the country in the people who are against the war or against sort of U.S. Uh, taking more aggressive interventionist policy separate that in their heads in terms of the policy makers who are the ones ultimately responsible for that 
and the men and women who actually serve. Um, because I think then I think, and I think that's a good thing because, um, it is a, a better analysis too, of like, who is, who is actually responsible for those things. Um, and so, no, I, 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 and some people do sign up sincerely because they want to find a way to serve. And I think there aren't a lot of other things you can do in this country where you feel that strong sense of service. Um, it's one of the few avenues we have that is a very like respected, cherished institution of service to the nation. Um, I actually think we should have national service for everyone um, that you could serve in the military when you graduate from high school, or maybe you're planting trees, like half of California burns down every year, um, or you're doing watershed restoration, or you're going into another part of your community and, uh, and helping out. So I, I think the, those people are fine. Thank you, everybody, today. Thank you, my dad, Don McClay, and thank you, Renee, for coming here today and just giving us so much insight into the complicated aspects of our family and of many families in America, you know? Because we're hardly the only family that has a history of white supremacy, of militarism, things like that. And that's just what we touched on today. So that just goes to show, listeners, thank you for joining us the McClay family to listen to us talk about these things. We hope that you come to join us next time where we will be talking about a variety of aspects, things that affect all of us and have affected our family in particular. So thank you two for joining me. I am Sam McClay and you have listened to the McClay cast. Peace.